If you have a Bible, you can open it with me or your digital scroll, whatever you'll use. We're going to turn to John 21 in just a moment. As we, before we read that, the quick introduction that we've come through, not the whole Gospel of John, but we've been looking at encounters with Jesus. And after writing what seemed to be the perfect ending in John chapter 20, where he says, oh, Jesus rose and he appeared to people. And hey, Thomas isn't disbelieving, but is believing now. And, and therefore, all these have written that you might believe and have life in his name. It looks like the perfect ending, and yet, then we have chapter 21, which is an epilogue of sorts. Why? Why, after that ending in chapter 20, does John think we need the information in chapter 21? What is it that the disciples then, that you and I as followers of Jesus now, need to know? Follow along with me as we read John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And he sa they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to Jesus, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, uh, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will, be, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? 
Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which does not wither or fade, but is tried and true, as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. Use it to shape our lives, we ask in your name. Amen. So today is a special day, right? We had the baptism of a covenant child. And we're going to have uh, the installation service for Marty as a church planter for Amelia. I mean, this is great. In a way, we get the spectrum of the church, welcoming people in to the life in the covenant community of the church and sending people out on mission to start another one. It's a, it's a, great, a great day in that way. And a cute baby, right? I mean, Luke, so cute. I mean, even though he cried, it's because earlier this week in the hallway, he cried too, or that last week, and, and he doesn't like me. No, I'm just kidding. He is cute. You and I have lived a bit longer than Luke, and, and so um, we have sinned quite a bit more and probably failed Jesus repeatedly in different ways and in different times. We just heard how much even a child like Luke needs Jesus. He needs the forgiveness and cleansing of his sins. We know that Amelia County people need the forgiveness and cleansing of sins. We know that church planters and pastors need cleansing and forgiveness of sins. We know that our community needs the cleansing and forgiveness of sins. We know that each and every one of us needs the good news of the gospel over and over again and again. And I think sometimes what you and I are tempted to do is view Jesus like a checklist of things we got to do. We got busy lives and we're like, okay, here's my list. You know, Jesus, he's got to be closer to the top than that. So we move him up a little bit. And then that week we're like, okay, check, I did my Jesus thing, and then we go on. Or maybe it's like a trophy, you know, you get your trophy collection, you did that thing, you got your trophy for that, you put it on your shelf, I'm good, Jesus and I are good, I got his trophy right there, he says he's good. Jesus isn't there to be a thing on your checklist or a trophy on your shelf. When Jesus comes and rises from the dead, he is saying, I'm coming to give you an entirely new life. Your whole life needs to be reoriented around me. I'm not just an add-on here or there. But, but what if you don't feel that way? I mean, what if you have, but, but right now it's difficult? What if you feel like giving up, like quitting? What if your past regrets and shame continue to haunt you and you cannot seem to silence those voices? What if you don't feel that you are worthy and you wonder, could Jesus really love me? Okay, maybe he loves me in general, but does he want me? Like, does he like me? Can Jesus really use me? Do I have any value to him? I think John writes this for all those who have blown it and who have walked away from Jesus wounded. 
He writes it so that we know that Jesus uses ordinary people like fishermen to be ambassadors for his church. That's what Jesus does. Makes you and I ambassadors of his good news. So the title of the sermon this morning, I think there's a title slide you can put up there, is, is this. This is what I'm proposing to you, right? Is that Jesus reminds us, each of us, how much we need to encounter the gospel, the good news of Jesus, again and again and again and again. And that's what this chapter is doing. Oh, yeah. Jesus rose, but you know what? You still need him again and again, again and again. Let me ask you a question about this text that we, that we just read. Where are they? Do you remember? They're, you know, they're, they're by a, a sea. They're by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, that's where they are. And, and, the, and most of the disciples are there. Thomas didn't miss. He's there. And, and what are they doing? They're fishing. Does any of this sound familiar? Because this is what happens when Jesus first sees them. They're fishing by the sea. And he comes to them and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. John has painted this picture where Jesus has showed up to them as they're fishing and Jesus is reminding them, you remember that call? Yeah, you're going to be my ambassadors. Still are. I'm not done with you. So the three points we're going to look at today are that we need the gospel for redirection, refueling, and restoration. The first is this, though. You need to encounter the gospel again and again because you need to... uh, be redirected towards Jesus' mission. You need to encounter the gospel again and again in order to be redirected toward Jesus' mission. Peter may have thought, I don't know what was in Peter's mind, I'm speculating, right? But he may have thought that, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I mean, I, I did see Jesus and that's good. I have great hope restored, but what am I going to do? I don't know, I'm just going to go back to fishing. He's back to his hometown. He's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's up there and they're, and they're fishing. And, and um, so that's what he's going to do. But Jesus comes to him and what does he do? He redirects him and says, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Yes, Peter, you. The one who denied me, yes, you are going to take care of my sheep. I'm not done with you. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't left you. I haven't stopped loving you feed my sheep. So he redirects him toward his mission. And for us, this doesn't mean when we read something like this and we say, okay, well, Peter's fishing and he gets redirected toward Jesus' mission. He has to give up everything and and go and and follow him. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to quit your job. For some of you, maybe it is. Maybe there's a transition. Maybe you're being called into ministry and and you're going to have a career change and you should do that. But that's not what it means for everybody. What it does mean, though, is that whatever your occupation is, it should be a vehicle for your vocation of following Jesus, orienting your life around him, and bringing beauty and goodness to your workplace so that people know that you are a follower of Jesus. I mean, Lydia did this, right? Lydia gets converted in Acts. She's an international dealer in purple cloth. She doesn't quit her business. She uses that, but she opens her house to start a new church in Philippi, right? And so... They start a new church because this is what she does. She knows that she is called to be an ambassador for Jesus in this way. So ask yourself, in what ways do I need to be redirected toward the mission of Jesus? 
In what ways do I need to be redirected toward the mission of Jesus? Ask yourself, who am I praying for? Who am I praying for that needs to know the saving grace of Jesus? And if you don't have somebody, figure that out and write it down. Ask yourself this question. Have I shared my faith with anybody in the last month? Anytime in the last month I've shared my faith in some way with somebody. Right? I mean, one of the things that we say at Spring Run is that our mission is to make growing followers of Jesus who influence others with the gospel. Right? We gather together, we grow, and we go. This is the rhythm of Jesus and his disciples. It's what he's doing here in John 21 as he's recommissioning and sending them out yet again. And so we need to be redirected toward the mission of Jesus. But secondly, you need to encounter the gospel again and again because you need to be refueled by Jesus' provision. You need to be refueled by Jesus' provision. Peter and the others have a huge catch of fish, 153 to be specific. And they drag them ashore. The nets are filled. But how did they catch those fish? Remember, they didn't catch anything. And Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And then they have a huge catch. Jesus supplied that catch. And when they get to shore, in verse 9, what do we see? Let's put verse 9 on the screen. Notice they, they get their 153 fish. They're dragging them to the shore. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Did Jesus need their 153 fish? He didn't need, it. He didn't need their fish. They're not supplying Jesus. He supplies himself and sustains himself. He doesn't need us in that way. He's the son of God, the risen one who conquered death. He doesn't need us to give him fish so that he can survive. What he is doing here is teaching a lesson to the disciples that you're not going to sustain me. I'm going to sustain you. Remember? This is how it goes. I'm the one who supplied your needs and gave you those 153 fish. But he does have them participate in it. He says, bring the fish. All those fish I just supplied, bring them here. Bring some here. Let's put them on the fire too, right? The clear message is we cannot go about Jesus' mission without being fueled by his provision. He supplies everything we have and we need. And he wants you to be involved in giving it back. That's what they do. They take what Jesus supplied them and then gave some of it back, right? I mean, this is our whole life. Our whole life is given to us by Jesus. Every breath we have, everything that we have, every uh, material possession we have is because Jesus allows us to have it and gifts it to us. And what he is saying is, I intend for you to use all of that as my disciple to go and make other disciples. And so you might ask yourself, am I running on my own strength? Am I running in such a way through life that I'm convinced that I supply all of my needs and that I'm just fine on my own? And maybe a corollary of that is you might, be think, I mean, you might ask yourself, am I running on empty? And if you are running on empty, it might be because you're trying to run all in your own strength. 
right? I mean, which fuel source are you neglecting? Because Jesus gives us many. He gives us the word, scripture. We should look at and see and be reminded and be encouraged like we are in John 21 of what Jesus does for us. Prayer, be praying. Weekly worship with the church. Yeah, I've given you everything you have, but come and worship with me. Giving of our money back. Jesus says, I've given you everything you have. Give some of it back to me. Giving of your time. Time is a huge thing to give. But Jesus says, I'm the owner of it all. What part will you give back to me? Your gifts, your spiritual gifts, your talents, your resources, all of that is supplied by Jesus. But if you forget that, and if you go in your own strength, you're going to run empty really fast. And if you want to see the power of God, you must rely on his provision. Say, okay, Jesus, you've called us to this, this life of following you, provide. And not only do we need to be redirected toward Jesus' mission and refueled by Jesus' provisions, but you need to encounter the gospel again and again to be restored by Jesus' compassion. This is my the third point here, to be restored by Jesus' compassion. When you read the Bible, it's important to observe what you read, okay? Look for details and consider things. What details did you notice as we read? I mean, there might be lots, and there's lots that I'm not, I don't have time to talk about right now, but there's one that sticks out that I want us to look at, and it's in verse 9, if you'll put that verse on the screen for us. Verse 9 mentions something that I want you to notice. What does it say? What are the details there? We saw that there's fish and bread. After they've landed, what's the other fact that's there? A fire of burning coals. That's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Might have occurred many more times than that, but it's only mentioned twice. This is one place. Do you know where the other place is? It's when Peter follows Jesus after he's arrested into the inner courtyard. And it says he's warming himself by a charcoal fire when the rooster crows and he denies Jesus. Now, John's not doing this accidentally. He is specifically calling to mind an old wound. Not that old, but nevertheless a wound. He is using this to get to the wounds in Peter's memory. Now you may say, well, why would Jesus do that? That seems so mean and so heartless. Is, does he just want us to suffer? Is he just trying to shame us? No, that's not what Jesus is doing at all. We know that because as far as the law goes, Peter has no charges against him. Jesus from the cross said, forgive them. It's finished. It's over. Like he's not holding it against them as, as some way of punishment. What he knows is what Peter knows is that Peter can't shake it. He's got plenty of memories and wounds, and he probably thinks, I'm a failure. I'll just go fishing. And Jesus explores those memories and those wounds to apply the restorative power of the gospel to us. I want you to notice a couple of things about this before we wrap up here. The first about restoration is this. Restoration heals, but it may also hurt. Look at verse 17. Let's put that verse on the screen if you would. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. 
Peter was hurt. God's grace produces redemptive pain. And you may not like that. Like, I don't, I don't think I want, yep, yep, take my name off the list. I'm not signing up for any kind of pain. I got a newsflash for you. Life has pain. You're not going to avoid pain. The question is, can you, be, can you trust somebody in the middle of that pain and it's being used for your good? And God's grace does not pretend that no wrong has been done nor exact punishment for wrong done because Jesus already took the punishment on the cross. What Jesus is doing here, though, is dealing with Peter's pain, dealing with our pain, the wounds that we have to bring us healing. Like removing an infection. If a doctor's going to remove an infection from you, right? He might have to cut into you to, to get the infection out. And that may cause a little pain, but it's to bring healing. The gospel leads us to repent, to own our messes and say, this is what I've done. I've blown it. To confess that to those whom we have sinned against and to seek forgiveness. It calls us to grieve over our sin. Yes, how we have hurt people and how we have been hurt by others. But it never leaves us there. It always offers the healing in it, the goodness, the mercy, and the love of Jesus. And it reaffirms that we have a part in his mission. Jesus isn't saying, yeah, that failure and that wound, yeah, you're, you're on the bench, Peter. No, he's saying to Peter, I have plans for you and you will be my ambassador. What are your wounds of shame and regret from the ways you have failed Jesus? What are your wounds? What are those hurts? The second thing about restoration is this. Restoration gets to the heart of the matter. You remember the question that Jesus asks Peter three times? Peter denies him three times. Three times Jesus asks him. What question does he ask him? Do you, you're allowed to say it, love me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Notice the difference that because before he's asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter answers, you're the Christ, the son of the God, right, the Messiah. He's asked Thomas, do you believe me? Right, stop disbelieving and believe. What, what if he asked Peter, Peter, do you promise not to fail me again? My guess, just a guess, my guess is Peter had been like, I promise, Jesus. I pinky promise. I promise, promise, promise. I won't do that again. But Peter's not perfect. As far as he doesn't deny Jesus again, he does plenty of other things, we know, because he's a sinner, and there's some recorded in Galatians about he and Paul that he does and that he messes up. But Jesus doesn't ask him that. Jesus is getting to Peter's heart, to his affections, to his desires, and he's getting to yours too. In other words, he's not saying, do you promise never to do this again? What he is saying is, do you love me? Because Jesus knows that when your heart is captured by him, you will keep coming back. Peter's heart has been captured by Jesus because they're on the way to shore and he jumps out of the boat to get to shore faster than the boat is going to get him there because he wants to get to Jesus. 
His heart is for Jesus. Yes, he loves Jesus. And that's why Peter says over and over again, yes, I do love you. You know I love you. Does Jesus have your heart? Does he have your affections? Let me put it personally this way, because maybe you've never done this. Maybe you think, yeah, no, I love Jesus. Like, Jesus loves me. I love Jesus abstractly. Can you say, Jesus, I love you. Like, and mean that, like you would to, to a friend or to a spouse. Jesus, I, I love you. Is that something you can do? Is, is it really grab the affections of your heart? That Jesus, I love you. What are the loves in your heart and what do they reveal about your desires? And what makes you look back to Jesus? The thing that makes you look back to Jesus is his never-ending, overflowing love that doesn't stop. Dane Ortland writes in Gentle and Lowly, he says, Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, quoting Hebrews 5, 2 which he notes is both the unwilling sin and the willful sin. The point is that Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Peter jumped out of the boat. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, as Revelation 1 says. Ortland goes on and he says this, consider what this means. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out the way some of our parents might have. All, and all this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. No, he knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, he gets down with us. He puts his arm around us. He deals with us in the way just we need. He deals gently with us. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus comes to you next to that charcoal fire, next to all your failures, that sting in your mind, those regrets and that shame. And he meets you there and he puts his arms around you and he says, you know what? You need the good news again and again. Yeah, amen to that. The good news will restore you in Jesus' compassion, refuel you for his provision and redirect you on his mission. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will keep us encountering the good news in fresh new ways, that we will encounter you again and again, your mercy and your grace. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.